Chapter 8 of The Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Moon Pool. Chapter 8 Olaf's Story. There was a little silence. I looked upon him with wonder. Clearly, he was in deepest earnest. I know the psychology of the Gale is a curious one and that deep in all their hearts their ancient traditions and beliefs have strong and living roots. And I was both amused and touched. Here was this soldier, who had faced war and its ugly realities open-eyed and fearless, picking, indeed, the most dangerous branch of the service for his own, a modern, if ever there was one, appreciative of the most unmystical Broadway and yet soberly and earnestly attesting to his belief in Banshee, in shadowy people of the woods, and phantom harpers. I wondered what he would think if he could see the dweller, and then, with a pang, that perhaps his superstitions might make him an easy prey. He shook his head half impatiently and ran a hand over his eyes, turned to me and grinned. "'Don't think I'm cracked, Professor,' he said. "'I'm not.' but it takes me that way now and then. It's the Irish in me. And believe it or not, I'm telling you the truth." I looked eastward, where the moon, now nearly a week past the full, was mounting. "'You can't make me see what you've seen, Lieutenant,' I laughed. "'But you can make me hear. I've always wondered what kind of a noise a disembodied spirit could make without any vocal cords or breath or any other earthly sound-producing mechanism. How does the banshee sound?" O'Keefe looked at me seriously. "'All right,' he said. "'I'll show you.' From deep down in his throat came first a low, weird sobbing that mounted steadily into a keening whose mournfulness made my skin creep. Then his hand shot out and gripped my shoulder, and I stiffened like stone in my chair. For from behind us, like an echo, and then, taking up the cry, swelled a wail that seemed to hold within it a sublimation of the sorrows of centuries. It gathered itself into one heartbroken, sobbing note and died away. O'Keefe's grip loosened, and he rose swiftly to his feet. "'It's all right, Professor,' he said. "'It's for me. It found me, all this way from Ireland.' Again the silence was rent by the cry. But now I had located it. It came from my room, and it could mean only one thing. Huldrickson had wakened. "'Forget your banshee,' I gasped, and made a jump for the cabin. Out of the corner of my eye I noted a look of half-sheepish relief flit over O'Keefe's face, and then he was beside me. Da Costa shouted an order from the wheel, the Cantonese ran up and took it from his hands, and the little Portuguese pattered down toward us. My hand on the door, ready to throw it open, I stopped. What if the dweller were within? What if we had been wrong, and it was not dependent for its power upon that full flood of moon-ray which Throckmorton had thought essential to draw it from the blue pool? From within the sobbing wail began once more to rise. O'Keefe pushed me aside, threw open the door, and crouched low within it. I saw an automatic flash dully in his hand, saw it cover the cabin from side to side, following the swift sweep of his eyes around it. Then he straightened, and his face, turned toward the berth, was filled with wondering pity.
Through the window streamed a shaft of the moonlight. It fell upon Huldrickson's staring eyes. In them great tears slowly gathered and rolled down his cheeks. From his opened mouth came the woe-laden wailing. I ran to the port and drew the curtains. Da Costa snapped the lights. The Norseman's dolorous crying stopped as abruptly as though cut. His gaze rolled toward us. And at one bound he broke through the leashes I had buckled round him and faced us, his eyes glaring, his yellow hair almost erect with the force of the rage visibly surging through him. Da Costa shrunk behind me. O'Keefe, coolly watchful, took a quick step that brought him in front of me. "'Where do you take me?' said Huldrickson, and his voice was like the growl of a beast. "'Where is my boat?' I touched O'Keefe gently and stood before the giant. "'Listen, Olaf Huldrickson,' I said. "'We take you to where the sparkling devil took your Helma and your Frida. We follow the sparkling devil that came down from the moon. Do you hear me?' I spoke slowly, distinctly, striving to pierce the mists that I knew swirled around the strained brain. And the words did pierce. He thrust out a shaking hand. "'You say you follow?' he asked falteringly. "'You know where to follow? Where it took my Helma and my little Frida?' "'Just that, Olaf Huldrickson,' I answered. "'Just that. I pledge you my life that I know.' Da Costa stepped forward. "'He speaks true, Olaf. You go faster on the Suarna than on the Brunhilda, Olaf, yes.' The giant Norseman, still gripping my hand, looked at him. "'I know you, da Costa,' he muttered. "'You are all right, yeah. You are a fair man. Where is the Brunhilde?' "'She follow behind on a big rope, Olaf,' soothed the Portuguese. "'Soon you see her. But now lie down and tell us, if you can, why you tie yourself to your wheel and what it is that happened, Olaf.' If you'll tell us how the sparkling devil came, it will help us all when we get to where it is, Huldrickson, I said. On O'Keefe's face there was an expression of well-nigh ludicrous doubt and amazement. He glanced from one to the other. The giant shifted his own tense look from me to the Irishman. A gleam of approval lighted in his eyes. He loosed me and gripped O'Keefe's arm. Stark, he said. Yeah, strong and with a strong art. A man, ya, yeah, he comes too. We shall need him, ya. Yeah. I tell, he muttered, and seated himself on the side of the bunk. It was four nights ago. My Frida, his voice shook, mine yinling, she loved the moonlight. I was at the wheel, and my Frida and my Helma, they were behind me. The moon was behind us, and the Brunhilde was like a swan-boat sailing down with the moonlight sending her, yeah. I heard my Frida say, I see Anissa coming down the track of the moon, and I hear her mother laugh, low, like a mother does when her inning dreams. I was happy, that night, with my Elma and my Frida, and the Brunhilde sailing like a swan-boat, yeah. I heard the child say, Denise comes fast and then I heard a scream from my helm, a great scream, 
like a mare when her foal is torn from her. I spun around fast, ya. Yeah. I dropped the wheel and spun fast. I saw—' He covered his eyes with his hands. The Portuguese had crept close to me, and I heard him panting like a frightened dog. "'I saw a white fire spring over the rail,' whispered Olaf Huldrickson. "'It whirled round and round, and it shone like—like stars in a whirlwind mist. There was a noise in my ears. It sounded like bells, little bells, ya, yeah? like the music you make when you run your finger round goblets. It made me sick and dizzy, the hell noise. My helm was in the hold, what you say, in the middle of the white fire. She turned her face to me, and she turned it on the child, and my helm's face burned into my heart, because it was full of fear, and it was full of happiness, of glade. I tell you that the fear in my helm's face made me ice here." He beat his breast with clenched hand. But the happiness in it burned on me like fire, and I could not move, I could not move. I said, in here, he touched his head, I said, it is Loki come out of Helved, but he cannot take my helm, for Christ leaves, and Loki has no power to hurt my helm or my Frida. Christ lives, Christ lives, I said. But the sparkling devil did not let my helm go. It drew her to the rail, half over it. I saw her eyes upon the child, and the little she broke away and reached to it. And my Frida jumped into her arms, and the fire wrapped them both, and they were gone. A little I saw them whirling on the moon track behind the Brunhilde, and they were gone. The sparkling devil took them. Loki was loosed, and he had the power. I turned the Brunhilde, and I followed where my Hilma and my Ninling had gone. My boys crept up and asked me to turn again, but I would not. They dropped the boat and left me. I steered straight on the path. I lashed my hands to the wheel, that sleep might not loose them. I steered on, and on, and on. "'Where was the god I prayed when my wife and child were taken?' cried Olaf Huldrickson, and it was as though I heard Throckmorton asking that same bitter question. "'I have left him, as he left me, ya. I pray now to Tor and to Odin, who can fetter Loki.' He sank back, covering again his eyes. "'Olaf,' I said, "'what you have called the sparkling devil has taken one's dear to me. I, too, was following it when we found you. You shall go with me to its home, and there we will try to take from it your wife and your child, and my friends as well. But now that you may be strong for what is before us, you must sleep again.' Olaf Huldrickson looked upon me, and in his eyes was that something which souls must see, in the eyes of him and the old Egyptians called the Searcher of Hearts in the Judgment Hall of Osiris. "'You speak truth,' he said at last, slowly. "'I will do what you say.' 
He stretched out an arm at my bidding. I gave him a second injection. He lay back, and soon he was sleeping. I turned toward da Costa. His face was livid and sweating, and he was trembling pitiably. O'Keefe stirred. "'You did that mighty well, Dr. Goodwin,' he said. "'So well that I almost believed you myself.' "'What did you think of his story, Mr. O'Keefe?' I asked. His answer was almost painfully brief and colloquial. "'Nuts,' he said. I was a little shocked, I admit. "'I think he's crazy, Dr. Goodwin,' he corrected himself quickly. "'What else could I think?' I turned to the little Portuguese without answering. "'There is no need for any anxiety tonight, Captain,' I said. "'Take my word for it. You need some rest yourself. Shall I give you a sleeping draught?' "'I do wish you would, Dr. Goodwin, sir,' he answered gratefully. "'Tomorrow, when I feel better, I would have a talk with you.' I nodded. He did know something, then. I mixed him an opiate of considerable strength. He took it and went to his own cabin. I locked the door behind him, and then, sitting beside the sleeping Norseman, I told O'Keefe my story from end to end. He asked few questions as I spoke. But after I had finished he cross-examined me rather minutely upon my recollections of the radiant phases upon each appearance, checking these with Throckmorton's observations of the same phenomena in the chamber of the moon-pool. And now what do you think of it all? I asked. He sat silent for a while, looking at Huldrickson. Not what you seem to think, Dr. Goodwin, he answered at last, gravely. Let me sleep over it. One thing, of course, is certain. You and your friend Throckmorton and this man here saw something. But— He was silent again, and then continued with a kindness that I found vaguely irritating. But I've noticed that when a scientist gets superstitious, it, er, uh, takes very hard. There's a few things I can tell you now, though, he went on while I struggled to speak. I pray in my heart that we'll meet neither the dolphin nor anything with wireless on board going up, because, Dr. Goodwin, I dearly love to take a crack at your dweller. And another thing, said O'Keefe. After this, cut out the trimmings, Doc, and call me plain Larry, for whether I think you're crazy or whether I don't, you're there with the nerve, Professor, and I'm for you. Good night, said Larry, and took himself out to the deck hammock he had insisted upon having slung for him, refusing the captain's importunities to use his own cabin. And it was with extremely mixed emotions, as to his compliment, that I watched him go. Superstitious. I, whose pride was my scientific devotion to fact and fact alone. Superstitious, and this from a man who believed in banshees and ghostly harpers and Irish wood-nymphs and no doubt in leprechauns and all their tribe. Half laughing, half irritated, and wholly happy in even the part-promise of Larry O'Keefe's comradeship on my venture, I arranged a couple of pillows, stretched myself out on two chairs, and took up my vigil beside Olaf Huldrickson. End of chapter 8